You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. You know, I think one of the great fallacies of uh, spiritual growth, in at least in Western culture, is we really believe the lie that if we listen to it or read about it, we're going to change. And um, I think we all actually know that's not true, but we keep operating that way. The way we really experience profound transformation, at least one of the ways, is we have to bravely practice. We actually have to take the courage to try on some of the ideas we're learning or listening to and then put them into practice that week. That's why oftentimes when I'm coaching people and maybe, for example, they're afraid of offending somebody, they're afraid of not getting someone's approval or maybe they're afraid of getting it wrong, you know, they have a harsh inner critic, I'll actually prescribe for them this week to commit an intentional mistake to intentionally offend someone in a meeting that week. That's just one example of brave practice. And, you know, just here in 2020 with everything that we've gone through, I just want to encourage you to go from listening to this podcast to actually putting some of these things into practice. So hopefully you have a group of people you can do that with. I would love to hear from you. If you've tried something that's worked for you, just reach out to me on Twitter. You can send me an email, steve at stevecusswords.com. It would just mean a lot to me to hear what are some of the ways that you're putting these tools into practice, what's working, what's not, any breakthroughs you've experienced. That, that would just be fantastic. At today's guest, I'm honored to say is Dr. J.R. Rosco. J.R. is the founder and the creator of the Missio Alliance. And as you've, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you're probably already aware that we are part and proudly part of the Missio Alliance Network. The Missio Alliance is this fantastic collective of thinkers and leaders that write and do podcasts and hold um, conferences just on what it's like to be an activist church uh, nowadays. So you can go to missioalliance.org. You'll see all kinds of great articles and podcasts on there. MLA is proudly part of that. JR is the one that got us started. And I was interested in interviewing JR for two reasons. Number one, I think it's really helpful when we hear from people who build something from scratch. And that's what JR did with Missio Alliance. Of course, he didn't do it alone, as, as we'll get to. I'm equally interested in hearing what transition is like when you know it's time to move on. And so that's really what we cover here today with JR. How did he get Missio going? But then how did he know when it was time to hand it over? And what's he doing now? So without further ado, here's JR. So JR, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Really good to be sitting down with you. Excellent. Hey, tell us about Missio. For someone who, uh, you know, I had, a, I'm joking about the dozens. I had a few thousand listeners before I jumped on the Missio channel. So a lot of my people may not know a lot about it. How would you describe it to people? Well, Missio really got going in 2012. Um, and I certainly was not the sole founder of Missio Alliance. I have been there since the beginning. Uh, at the time, I was, what was my title? Associate Director of institutional advancement, I think, at Northern Seminary uh, outside of Chicago, uh, where my family lived. And I was uh, part of a church called Life on the Vine uh, that met in the northwest suburbs of Chicago that was a part of the Ecclesia Church Network uh, that was started and led by my good friend Chris Backert. And so there were those of us who were who were pastors and friends uh, within the Ecclesia Church Network that sort of together were all sort of sensing the need for some sort of like trans-tribal 
space uh, where people could have ongoing uh, theological conversations uh, that were not academic, but were really emanating out of what we were experiencing and engaging on the ground. Uh, and so it was really a, a collaboration. So Chris Backert, again, the head of the Ecclesia Network, and I were talking in out of my role at Northern Seminary about the possibility of something like that coming together. And Northern actually played a really key role financially in terms of just their base of people of helping get Missio Alliance off the ground. So some of those conversations were happening in 2011. I came on board really as the primary director in 2012. The very first public thing we did was a national gathering in the spring of 2013. So that's kind of the backstory to how we got going. Yeah. I think it's always fascinating when someone has a vision, they see a need, they they have a vision, then they start either building an organization toward it or getting a collective toward it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the the reason I always know a seasoned leader is when you're always living in the gap between the vision and the reality. So with Mistio, what what do you, you look back and you say, oh, this boy, we really hit the target on this thing. And then what would be something where you'd be like, oh, we still didn't quite get there. Oh, wow. What a good question. Uh, man, if I'm remembering right, I think about 800 folks did turn up at our very first national gathering in Alexandria, Virginia in 2013. And so for an organization that had no budget, like no existing, uh, you know, its own sort of internal constituency or anything like that, I would say we were kind of scratching in itch. There was a sort of mission, a theologically missional kind of impulse that we were bringing into the equation. And I think we were just adequately responding to what we were hearing people on the ground say that they were feeling like a need for. And then, of course, it was, you know, just new and people like to check out new things and so, and then I would say, you know, over the course of the years, the things that we developed, a lot of that I'm, you know, still really proud of, and some things we tried that weren't weren't home runs or whatever. Man, in terms of like gaps that like things that are left, I would say the one thing that we never really could figure out or got around to, I still don't really know, is because Missio Alliance was primarily like a distributed network of people across the country and more broadly than that, who I think in some ways were sort of like aching for some kind of a home. But Missio Alliance was really never postured to provide a space of belonging exactly for people. Some people kind of like treated it that way and it filled that gap a little bit. But I would say there was that lingering question of, is there more that people are uh, searching for and they're maybe looking to Missio to provide it, but maybe we're not exactly set up that way. And just wrestling with, is that our job? Is that our calling? Or is that something else? Yeah, that, that I think that raises a, a universal challenge for every leader on when do you stick to your vision and when do you let the feedback of people change what you do? So people are crazy, like people are coming to Missio, they love the ideas, the thinking, the, the, a lot of it was writing, I remember in the early days, people posting articles, mm-hmm. but they're craving that deeper community. When do you then shift what you do and offer that and when do you not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you were the primary leader of Missio for, if my math is correct, like eight years, I think, JR, is that right? Yeah, eight and a half. So I um, finished my time with Missio um, just, well, July 10th. Friday, July 10th, and we're recording this on August 13th. So I'm just, it's just been a month since I've been done. Yeah. One topic we have not covered much on this uh, podcast is leadership transition. 
uh, I'd love to hear from you on, I, I guess we'll break it down. What in you gave you a sense maybe it was time to transition leadership? This was not easy for me. I, I'm 41. I've never been a part of uh, helping to start something on a scale of Missio Alliance before. So it's not like I had this, uh, there was an experience that I had sort of in my background of like, oh, I've, I've been here before and now I know. Like, and so it was a big guess. <laughs> it was a constant sort of soul searching. Um, and if I'm being honest, a real sense of fear of like, what if I'm just supposed to press through? What if some of the anxiety that I'm feeling uh, about and uh, in asking this question about whether or not it's time to make a transition, what if it's just fear that I need to press through? And so that catalyzed a lot of conversation with people, a lot of prayer um, a lot of silence for me. And I, I didn't have a revelation. I didn't really wake up one morning and go, oh, God just downloaded an answer to me. It was a conglomeration of those things coming together that I felt like began to well up in me as a sense of peace in one way about feeling like I can make this transition and feel okay. But I would be lying if I didn't say that there was still some lingering like... <clears throat> You know, is this the right, like, you just don't know for sure. And it was a lot to let go of. So anyways, that was my experience with the process. Yeah. And then, like you said, it's only been a month. There's also a, I, I would imagine I, I'm, I'm proposing this, but there's got to be some combination of grief and relief. Yes, there is both of those things. Um, I am characteristically bad at grief. I do feel like I have allowed myself to grieve this transition and loss more so than other kinds of transitions in the past. This is, I really do think it's the first time I've made any kind of transition in my life that like, I didn't really want to make, if that makes sense. What I mean by that is left to my own devices. I had plenty of passion and energy and vision, like Left to my own devices, I, I could have been really, I think, happy it lead, continuing to uh, stay in the mix with Missio Alliance. It, was, it wasn't, there was nothing else. I was like, oh, I'd rather go do this thing yeah. or I'm tired with this and I just want to do something else. It really was coming from a place of like, I really just think Missio Alliance needs a different kind of leader at this stage in its organizational development. Uh, and I'm having to wrestle with like, grief that that's not me, you know, frustration or anxiety about, well, should that be me? Should I just retool in some way? Should I try to tap into something that maybe that's not intuitive I need to develop? Yeah. So, so it wasn't like I felt completely ready to be done. It was more this, like a spiritual sense of, I, I think Missio for the best of Missio, for Missio's best, uh, we need a different leader right now. I think you're really tapping into any leader that's leading, whether it's a church, faith-based organization, and, and that organization is dynamic. It's growing, it's changing. I think you're tapping into what every leader struggles with, is when do I stay and develop? Mm -hmm. But when by staying am I developing out of my best contribution? Like... The line between stay and grow and change versus no, I'm not the best person for this or what the organization, I think that's a really tough line. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, we'll take any wisdom you have on how to discern that process because I think I think that's a common experience. I know for particularly a lot of pastors I talk to, that's a common experience. Yeah, I, one of the questions I felt like I really had to ask myself was, in my if I were to remain, I knew that I needed to, to try to sort out in my own soul: is that mainly for me, or is that really for the organization? I think it's Ruth Haley Barton um, in one of her books. I can't remember which one right now. Um, she offers this. She encourages people to sort of go to this imaginative place where you just al- allow yourself to envision having made this decision over here and like live with it for a few days. Just like imaginatively let yourself go to a place where that that decision's been made and live with it for a few days or a week and see how you feel. Uh, and then sort of go back and say, well, let me imagine that I make the other decision and live with that for a few days or a week and see how it feels. So I engaged, that was a, an exercise that I engaged in and felt like when I was living, you know, for a few days or a week or however long it was as though I had made the decision in my mind to, uh, step away from Missio, I felt like loss, but peace, <laughs> and um, when I was trying to live with the decision about remaining, it felt more anxiety producing. Like it felt like satisfying in a way because it was comfortable. It's what I knew. It's what I loved, but it felt more anxiety producing. And so then I just had to sort of, you know, walk through the sort of in a, in a, in a spiritual formation kind of sense. Like, do I want to be the person who just puts up with anxiety? Uh, <laughs> Because it allows me to hang on to that which I consider to be safe and known or to let it go. Everybody feels, you know, I think most people think of anxiety as like whoever would hang on to anxiety. And I feel like if we're honest, like most people choose to actually to hang on to anxiety. Yeah, we don't actually believe there's another way. I, I, that's my take on it is, is anxiety is exactly like a domestic violence relationship. We don't think we can actually get out of it and be free. Yes, and so my experience in the last month has been um, very, like, very freeing. And, and not that there isn't grief and loss and sadness, but um, those things are there. But a definitive sense of, like, peace. <laughs> and this was, like, the right decision. I'm just going to testify, JR, before we get to the next question. I think most, let's, let me just talk to pastors. I think most pastors are looking for thoughtful resources on how to pastor in the Western church. Uh, we're looking for leadership resources or, or ways to think that are just much more nuanced and deeper than your stereotypical leadership stuff. I just got to say, Missio Alliance's quality of thinkers, um, having published for them the editorial process that like, I know Helen Lee right now, quick shout out to Helen. Yeah. She's a gifted editor. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Everything Missio puts up, I think, is worth a leader's time. Hmm. I think that's something to be really proud of. That's just saying, like, I, I you know, I get no benefit from um, promoting Missio, right? Like, there's no financial agreement. I'm just proud to be part of the family. But, but what you guys have created, I think, is a remarkable uh, set of resources for faith leaders. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I'll just say, like, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the spirit was doing something yeah. like there was there was a congealing of the spirit and uh, and people, leaders, ide- like we were so incredibly blessed um, by the people who resonated with the idea and the vision and donated 
their time. I mean, like, so, I mean, our team, people are shocked to find out like two, two full-time people, right? When you add it all up, when you add everyone on the team up, you get something like two full-time people making you know, FTE in, in an FTE kind of sense. Right. And then you get a whole lot of a network of really dedicated writers, leaders, thinkers, Who's, who are so passionate about the values and the ethos of Missio that they've really made it what we do possible. So thank you for saying that. Um, it's, you know, gratifying to me to have been a part of it. And then, you know, hopefully as other people who are involved with Missio Alliance are hearing this, they know like they're the ones that really made that possible. Yeah. You know, I'm a I'm a pastor in the independent Christian churches, the restoration movement. I know you're familiar with it. You have direct experience with that movement. And uh, at my at my weakest moments, I wish I was Anglican. Just, straight <laughs> up, just straight up. Uh, and I also wish I was charismatic. I, I've always a lot of my staff will say, "You always want it all, all the time." And it's true. It's like I want the best of every stream, and then I want to ignore the worst of it. But you're the you're the second person I know. Well, that's the evangelical in you. Is that right? Is that what it is? <laughs> that's, isn't that what you know? Sort of, kind of means to be an evangelical is like we're just going to try to pick up all of the best of the things that we like from here and there, and ignore the other parts of various traditions. I hope I, I hope that's what an evangelical is. I don't I don't know if I'm an evangelical or not, but I do know that as much as I'm proud of our movement, I, I'm in it because it's familiar. You know, it's the tribe I was trained in. Mm. But we are devoid of so much. We're devoid of history, heritage. We're devoid of any awareness of God's spirit. I think, mm. I mean, that's probably overstating it, but uh, what made you move into the Anglican uh, communion? Yeah, so that was a long process uh, for me. Um, oddly enough, I was actually baptized uh, as an Episcopal, uh, as a baby. It was my father and my grandfather's tradition and had almost no touch points <laughs> with the Episcopal Church my whole life. It was, you know, huh. baptized into that tradition as a baby. I have vague memories of being around really early on in like preschool kinds of years, but then my family moved away and never really had a touch. And then I would say, you know, when I went in seminary at Fuller, I, I think I began to become more aware of what Anglicanism was and stood for. Uh, and then Life on the Vine, the church that we were a part of in Chicago, is Christian and Missionary Alliance, but is greatly resourced uh, by the Anglican tradition in terms of its orientation towards sacramentality and liturgy and um, the church calendar and all that kinds of all that kind of stuff. And so so even though I'm in this holiness tradition church, right, this life life on the vine, CMA, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, I'm being deeply resourced by the things of Anglicanism and over the course of time uh, developing friendships with Anglican leaders. And then of course realizing so many of the authors and theologians that I'm also influenced by being, and they just kind of hangs in the background for the longest time until you're like, oh, yeah. And then I would say, you know, I, I just got to a point where I felt like evangelicalism, this, where I kind of lived in the, sort of the broad Netherlands of evangelicalism just felt so very thin to me. Uh, and I wanted something thicker. I wanted to be a part of something steeped in tradition that was more oriented towards deep thinking and deep formation and a recognition that like this just came up for me the other day is that I, whether it's 
being white and male or Western or evangelical or some connection of those things, I am not inclined to submit to anyone or anything that I don't have a particular preference for. And at 40, I just realized I don't think that's healthy. I, th I think I need to make a decision whereby I am compelled to submit to um, loving authorities that have more to offer me than I might even be aware of. But I don't know that I would have been able to see that or recognize it had it not been for a variety of experiences, but especially like the formational experience I had of being part of Life on the Vine in Chicago. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So final question before we get to the gauntlet. Uh, tell us about the TELUS Collective. Yeah, so uh, this was sort of just announced the other day that I've become the executive director uh, for the TELUS Collective. This is a ministry that I've had like a really small uh, touch point with the last few years. It was started by Todd Hunter, who's uh, my bishop as an Anglican priest in C4SO. Uh, the diocese is called Churches for the Sake of Others, but TELUS is this other thing that Todd has started that's just a few years old. And I was sort of like helping them, like Todd asked me, hey, out of your experience with something like Missio, can you just help us think about the development of the TELOS Collective? And then after I had made the decision, it was actually last December when I uh, communicated to our board that I felt like my time with Missio Alliance was coming to an end. And I made that decision. Maybe this is the other piece of the puzzle I should have mentioned is like, one of, the, one of the big hangups for me in making that decision was not knowing what was going to come on the other side. I hadn't, it wasn't like a leader I had groomed. There wasn't, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And so that was another big thing I had to let go of is just making that decision that I felt like God was calling me to make without having the satisfaction of knowing this is what's in place. And so just leaving that to the hand of God afterwards. But yeah, over the course of the last few months, as, uh, as Todd and I have been in conversation, um, he just asked me, like, uh, tell us, has never had an executive director. And he said, hey, if you were even able to give 20 hours a week to this, it would be more than I've been able to give it since it started. And so it's just a better fit time-wise. Amy, my wife and I are co-pastors of a historic church in Canton, Ohio, uh, where we live, a 210-year-old church that we're essentially trying to revitalize and replant. And so that, you know, we share a full-time, we share one full-time role. Yeah. And so I have, you know, a maximum amount of, you know, 20 hours a week is a good fit. <laughs> so, uh, and it's a, you know, of course, a remote job, small team. And so the Telos Collective is focused on uh, forming leaders at the intersection of gospel and culture. And there's sort of six core um, emphases for us in, in teaching and training on those things. And anyways, it's just, it's a really good fit. It overlaps well with my, my role also as a pastor and gets and helps me stay close to Todd Hunter, uh, who is one of, I mean, he, he, you know, direct disciple of Dallas Willard, and is just one of the most uh, godly, encouraging, spiritually mature, deep life in the spirit kind of men that I know. It and it's a it's a it's a role that allows me to also be close to someone like Todd, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, it's funny as you're talking about it. I was thinking if someone's offering you a role where you get to rub shoulders with Todd Hunter, I think the answer is generally yes. He's like <laughs> a, he's like dad. Like just want to be around dad more. Yeah, yeah. He's he's um yeah he's he's a true gift and someone who I think has a voice 
it's Dallas Willard. It's hard to think about the kind of people it takes to replace someone like Dallas Willard and what he offered. I think Todd is, is one of those people. And he's done that for Missio. Like he's uh, spoken at, I think oh, maybe all of our national gatherings and has helped us do other regional events and summits and things like that. So, so we've had the opportunity to get to know one another pretty well over the last 10 years. And so it also feels just like a natural relational outgrowth of that, of that relationship. Uh, can anyone apply to be part of Telos? Is it a, closed community or open community? No, no. Yeah, it's very open. Uh, we have, uh, we do a yearly gathering that's called the Intersection Conference this year. We would have met in the spring. And of course, like many other things that got delayed on account of the coronavirus and that conference was postponed to the fall. It's coming up September 15 and 16 and is online uh, this year. That's certainly not our preference. We really enjoy being able to get people together, but we feel like the better, safer option this year was to move that conference online. So it is rooted in the uh, Anglican Church in North America. It's a provincial kind of initiative. And so I would say that's, you know, our first rung, right, is trying to do leadership formation uh, within the province. But then certainly it's very open to other people who are trying to be resourced. So those six six things very quickly, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, sort of a loving engagement with culture, missional ecclesiology, missional leadership, the empowering presence of the spirit and spiritual formation. Those are like our six core things. Uh, This year, the emphasis is on missional leadership. That will be the focus of the conference. Yeah, certainly open to anybody. Great. Yeah, I'll I'll pop a link in the show notes for people uh, who want to learn more about it. It, I think think you're just scratching another itch right now. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. So, um, you know, I can, I can just sense uh, your fear right now as we enter into the <laughs> gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask every guest. It's real. Yeah. It's real. Uh, so if you brace yourself like a man, um, we'll, we'll cover. I've got a list of eight questions here. We'll grab any five of them and, and see what happens. You, As always, you can pass or play. Um, first one, no need to be exhaustive, but give us two or three situations that you know are going to generate anxiety in your leadership. Well, I can, I mean, this was, this is a real example. I mean, when, when things shut down in mid-March for us here in Ohio and a lot of other places around the country, I I would say um, the time period between mid-March and mid-April and rolling up to Easter was one of the hardest, most anxiety producing times ever that I've ever experienced in my leadership. And I, I think it had everything to do with the fact that like, I had no access <laughs> to, what would you say, like meaningful, reliable, unchanging data and ideas. It, everything was moving. And so I felt like I, I, I felt like I had no capacity to make good real leadership decisions based on my ability to like take in all of the right information and, and say, filter it, synthesize it and say, here's the decision. And so I think I walked through bouts of depression in that first month, unlike any I've ever walked through in my life as a leader before. So I would say that would be one, just sort of like living in the unknown where you feel like I need external data (laughs) and information in order to make good leadership 
decisions. So that would be one. And then I would say another would be instances where I'm having to walk out conversations and decisions where my orientation is to like, I'm an Enneagram one. I tend to identify as an Enneagram one. And so uh, I'm always asking what's the right thing. And so if I find myself in situations where uh, the people who are jointly trying to make decisions together if they're more emotionally reactive or they want to do what feels right, maybe rather than like what I would think of is right based on the information we have at our disposal. Those are anxiety producing situations for me as well to have to sort of negotiate all of the different ways. And because I'm very team oriented, like my my disposition as a leader isn't here's what I decided. Let's just do it. Yeah. Like I really I really do try to be team oriented. But when I don't have I'm not working with a team that's using all the same sort of filters and logic and all that kind of stuff to try to make a joint decision. That also is very anxiety producing because I am not as patient a person as I would like to be at 40. So, yeah. yeah. So most people who identify as an Enneagram one, in my experience, have a pretty severe inner critic. Yeah. Tell us about a recent mistake you made. And then what do you do to recover from a mistake? Well, let's, which one do I want to pick? <laughs> the difficulty isn't finding one. Uh, I, in a conversation, a recent conversation with our elders, here at the church, it actually goes to that point that I was just making about these anxiety producing like conversations when folks aren't really using all the same filters or logic to, you know, work on a situation. I would say I have a tendency and did in this instance, sort of like, I'm already ahead in my mind about where we need to go. And so when I get impatient with the process that other people need to go through, because they haven't had the luxury maybe of the time that I've had to think about it or or for whatever reason. I, so I would say exp, like when frustration comes out of me that people aren't seeing as clearly as I see, what I see is like the inevitable place that we're going to. Anyways, I would, I would say in those instances, I catch myself being, what would be a good word? Gosh, Kurt. Uh, or uh, dismissive or exuding frustration with people. And so in those, in, like, and that happened recently. And what I need to do then is to go back um, and make personal apologies, explain what was happening in my head and my heart in that instance, and then, and then make promises that like, I, I'm, I'm pretty um, keen on inviting people um, to ex like express agency in helping me be more aware of when I'm doing things or saying things that I've said, I don't want to do that thing or act that way. And so giving people a uh, license to inform me when I'm doing that. So those are, those are some of the ways that I try to like address and mitigate those, those problems. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. My experience is that, um, if a leader can understand some family traits they've inherited and how those family traits show up good and bad in leadership, it, it can help the leader. Um, it's a very simple way of talking about a genogram. If you've ever done a genogram, I know you know, Bishop Hunter, he's a family systems guy. Uh, could you name for us a family trait you've inherited that you think is an asset in your leadership and then one that you think gets in the way? Yes. 
I've not done a, a genogram. I'm familiar with what they are and how they work. Uh, Richard Velotis, who I know has been here on the podcast before, is a good friend, and and I'm familiar with the work that he and you know Pete Scazzaro yeah. have put forward in sort of emotionally healthy spirituality and and that sort of thing. So I would say a positive trait that I've inherited from my family is like this will be funny in a certain way, but a, like a a loyalty and a stick to itiveness. I say that having divorced parents uh, who would divorce when I was very young, five or six. So obviously that didn't show up there. And yet both from my father and from my mother in other ways, I've observed in them this loyalty and stick to itiveness in other facets of their life. And so that I feel like is something that has been passed on by and large. Awesome. On the more negative side of things, uh, I would say there is also a um, uh, maybe it's just the other side of that is that you're so um, discretionary about who you're loyal and who you do stick close to. And then you can wind up being dismissive of people that aren't um, in that circle. Right. And so that happened with my parents in the construct of divorce. Right. That somehow like Whereas they both had an internal sense of like their preference, their orientation is loyalty and stick to itiveness. Once they, once they divorced, like it was like a whole other category. And so these really clear dividing lines, right. Of like, this looks good here, this loyalty and stick to itiveness, but then like almost a fear dismissal, like a pushing away maybe, um, from anyone and everything else that doesn't fall into that inner circle. Yeah. Anyways, off the cuff, those are two things that come to mind. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. You and your wife, Amy, are co-pastors. My experience is one of the sources of leadership pressure for a pastor, particularly a pastor who's in the habit of teaching or preaching or guiding people theologically, is the gap between what we believe about God and what we personally experience from God. Mm-hmm. How, how would you describe that gap in your life? Yeah, I would say, I mean, not only as a pastor, but as someone who's highly educated, right? So four years at a Christian university and then an MA in theology and a doctorate in missiology. It's not only ministry, right, that does that gap, but all this education um, that I have of like all the learning I've done about religion and God and theology, all that kind of stuff. Um, so even more so, I feel like I can talk a good game yeah. if I really want to. Uh, but then observing that gap and realizing, and again, um, this sort of dovetails back over into that conversation about why I felt the need to move into a tradition like Anglicanism and out of something just less broader, you know, evangelicalism was I needed something that said, here are spiritual disciplines that you can give yourself to. And it's not that the disciplines themselves don't do the work that, but they provide a space for the spirit to do the work if you can give yourself to them and open yourself up. So let me connect it to one other thing is what I said that month where I had such anxiety and, and bouts of depression through the first month of the shutdown and the coronavirus, I realized the way in which I had been practicing spiritual disciplines wasn't actually adequate to sustain me in that time. And one of the things that I recognized was <clears throat> the way that I my primary posture towards those spiritual disciplines uh, that I had in my life were still, I was using them in a way that allowed me to like give into my personal preference to think about the future 
right? As someone who's more wired apostolically or as an entrepreneur, that's where my heart and my mind tends to go. And it's why I felt like Missio needed someone who we just started so many things over the course of my eight years of being there. And we needed someone who's let's start, let's start developing some things and not start new things so much. So I noticed that gap there and it had everything to do with knowing, knowing a lot about ministry and knowing a lot about God can be tools to use for the purposes of thinking about the future and strategizing and forecasting and visioning and all that kind of stuff. But it's a whole different ballgame to become someone who actually knows how to be present, who can sit in the present, who can be really present with people um, without always thinking, where are we going? Yeah. What, what, where am I trying to take people? Where am I trying to take this thing? And so I don't know where the idea came from, but one of the a spiritual discipline that I started utilizing in that time was when I would take walks, I'm a big like walk around my neighborhood prayer walk and do that kind of thing, was I would envision myself walking with people in my congregation and just like asking, like trying to s- make my mind present to what their day was like, what they might be thinking about, what they might be experiencing. And I had never even imagined a spiritual practice like that. But it wasn't until that moment of crisis and anxiety that I realized the gap between even because I could make myself feel good. Well, I'm really practicing spiritual disciplines really well and not even notice I'm practicing them in a way that like isn't addressing the gap, a gap that exists in me spiritually, which is learning better how to be present uh, to people in situations. That was a little, you know, windy, twisty, turvy way of thinking and getting at that question. But that's a way in which that's showed up in my life recently. I think it's a great answer. It's as you're chatting, I was thinking of a guy named Glenn Packiam, who's also an Anglican priest. Yeah. And I think, as you know, Jay, uh, raised in a charismatic tradition and still pastoring in a charismatic tradition, finding that tradition wanting and then moving into Anglicanism and, and I think wonderfully combining both. And I was asking Glenn, what is it that Anglican provides him that his charismatic faith did not? And he, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember his actual quote, but he, he was just saying charismatic tradition kind of demands some kind of an uh, emotional experience to endorse the fact that you're connected with God. And he said, Anglicanism teaches you how to be bored with God, which I thought was really <laughs> freeing. Like, I love how he just under-promised <laughs> that, that the disciplines you're talking about just get you out of the driver's seat or get you out of the efficiency. I think that's what you're getting at, right? Is this idea of radical presence. Yes, Radical presence is a great way to put it. Yeah, I just, none of my education prepared me for that. And all of my, most of my instincts and orientations to ministry uh, are not conducive to that. Yeah. So the way that I've been formed ministerially, as well as the way in which I've been formed academically, haven't helped me bridge that gap into being somebody who is intentionally and happily present like can live in the present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Final question, JR. When in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? When things that I'm exerting passion and energy toward begin to yield fruit that blesses other people. And I honestly, I don't mean this in like some sort of self-congratulatory way when I say that like it's not even receiving praise for that. Like my role in facilitating that 
like that's not how I experienced love. It's actually just sort of like seeing it manifest and knowing for sure that the work, the labor, the prayer that I put in to whatever that thing was, is bearing kingdom fruit. And so, you know, (laughs) back to Glenn's insight into Anglicanism, there's another side of that to develop. Anyways, I think I've answered your question, but the downside I recognize in that is wondering, can I be the sort of person who finds love and contentment just in the satisfaction of being faithful, even if I don't get to, if the fruit that gets born isn't that which I get to see because either it's invisible or because it's just going to take longer. I, I think that's the answer to that question is like, I, I feel most loved when people are being blessed and encouraged by the fruit of labor that I've put into things. Yeah, I thought the first half of your answer was beautiful. And the second half was how an Enneagram one justifies the first half. I thought it was a great answer, as is. I'm sure that that's true. <laughs> yes. Uh, JR, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing your heart and uh, also just what you're doing now. It just it's, It sounds fascinating. So thanks for letting us be part of it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for asking these questions. And um, yeah, for the, your, your heart and what you pour into this podcast and the broader ministry surrounding managing leadership anxiety. I mean, this is really when things took off for Missio is when your podcast joined our family, <laughs> uh, our small network of podcasts. Anyways, it was a blessing. What you do is a blessing. So see, I'm trying to make you feel good. Well, I mean, you know, Bono has been reaching out lately. I think the Dalai Lama reached out the other day because of Missio. It's just our, our reach is immense. <clears throat> well, well, we'll just keep it up then. It's great. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyouralliance.org.